Have you had experiences in your life when your prayer life was challenged or you simply did not feel your prayer life was adequate or measured up? It's always fascinated me that whenever someone preaches on prayer, it seems like it's one of those subjects that you can always grow in. Do you know what I mean? It is not a subject matter that I can say I've heard preached on that it didn't challenge me because I've never been able to think, well, I'm good. I'm, I'm doing really well in my prayer life. I, I'm right where I should be, and I don't need to get any better or grow in that area anymore. In fact, I can remember times of not even just being under preaching, but being in prayer meetings, praying with another individual when I felt like praying with them and seeing the way they approached God made me feel kind of low. This happened my first year traveling an evangelistic team called Truth Alive between my sophomore and junior year of college. I was traveling with John Utley, who now pastors in Apex, North Carolina. And we were traveling here in North Carolina, and we were at a church in Siler City, North Carolina. And the Saturday evening before we would begin the week on Sunday... The pastor scheduled a prayer meeting in his home and had some other men gather and included myself and John as part of that prayer meeting. As I listened to the pastor and the youth pastor and some of the laymen of the church pray, it convicted me. They seemed to pray with such power and urgency that I had rarely been a part of. It happened again when I served as the youth pastor of the campus church. We were on a two-night retreat with our 9th through 12th grade young people. There were probably 70 teens or so with myself and Stephanie and several adult volunteers. And wouldn't you know, it's the one time in my life I've been diagnosed with bronchitis. And I was going to preach five times between late Thursday night, Friday, and early Saturday morning to our teens. And we were actually traveling from Pensacola to a camp up in northern Georgia. We didn't even arrive there until about 10 o'clock at night. And we let the kids unwind for a little while after being on the bus and had a service at about 11 o'clock Thursday night. And went through the day Friday. And this particular camp had not individual rooms, but it was like a big dormitory where all the guys were in one big dormitory room, all the girls were in one big dormitory room. And after our service Friday night and after some activities, the young men in our youth group and the adult leaders just started having what I might call an old-timey revival meeting in our dormitory. There were episodes of these high school young men 
crying out to one another things they were confessing to the Lord, taking turns praying, and it moved me. And one of my adult uh, youth volunteers who now pastors in Pennsylvania shared a challenge with the guys from the Word of God and began praying. Once again, he prayed with such power. He, he seemed to get such a grasp of God during his prayer that it made me feel a little uncomfortable in the sense that it challenged me in my prayer life. Here I was in the middle of a revival meeting with high school guys as a youth pastor. And, you know, one of those things you dream about if you're in ministry. And I was being convicted about my prayer life by one of my youth volunteers. My wife and I make it a practice to pray together every morning. And there have been many times as my wife and I have prayed together. Usually I'll pray first and then she'll pray. And there have been times that I pray and get done and then my wife prays and I go, man, my prayer was really weak. It convicts me. Have you ever been in that place? Where just listening to somebody else pray or, or being a part of a prayer meeting that was like that convicted you, challenged you. Perhaps it's even as you've read the Word of God and you've read the prayers of people like David, Paul, or even Jesus Christ himself, and you felt like you were lacking. As you measured up your prayer life, you'd have to come away going, my prayer life is really sorry. It's just bad, comparatively speaking. Is your prayer life simply a reciting of the same requests over and over again? No different than like repeating a poem or a nursery rhyme. Do you pray simply so you don't feel guilty about not praying? Well, I'll go ahead and say a prayer, and then I won't feel guilty that I didn't pray today. Does your prayer life revolve only around gratitude for food, traveling mercies, and illness to get better? Is that the limit of your prayer life? What effect is your prayer life having on your own life? Is your prayer life actually moving you, growing you, challenging you? Now we understand that there is nothing we are forbidden to request of God. I am thankful, as you've heard me say before, if it's a concern to you, if it's something you care about, God cares about it. Aren't you thankful for that tonight? There's nothing that you may care about that God says, no, you can't bring that to me. I don't care. He cares if you care, and you can bring it to him. But I believe that God desires that our prayer lives consist of more than our Amazon wish list. Our prayer life should be more than that. We are faithful to pray, I think, often about what will make us comfortable. But not as likely to pray for what will make us uncomfortable. And the reality is, it is when we pray for what will make us uncomfortable 
that will transform our prayer lives and our walk with God to bring us to a place where we are closer to Christ than we have ever been. And so tonight, I want to introduce a series, and I've preached along these lines before. Our small group adult study, the first time we went through a study was along these lines. I want us to take several weeks to examine some of the Bible's dangerous prayers. Prayer life, or prayers that, that take us beyond our comfortable prayer life. Prayers that take us to that place where we, in reflecting on our own prayer life, will often feel like my prayer life doesn't measure up. And I trust that it will challenge us to grow in this area of our prayer lives. And we're going to begin in Psalm 139. You cannot read far into the Psalms without identifying a variety of characteristics regarding David's prayer life. You read through the Psalms and you find that he cried out to God. He complained to God. He questioned God. He praised God. He expressed trust in God. And so much more. In Psalm 139, though, we find a dangerous prayer offered by David to God here in verses 23 and 24. Before we read these two verses that end the psalm, remember what is going on throughout the psalm up to that point. As you read through Psalm 139, you come away with the recognition that David realized that his God was a God of omniscience, and omnipresence. In other words, he's a God who is everywhere present at all times. And he's a God who knows all things. David in Psalm 139 spoke of his hatred for the way of the wicked. He speaks of how he hates how the wicked live life. And he is one who is focused on keeping his heart pure. He is he has attempted, he's tried to be right with God, to be a man of integrity, a man of righteousness. And still he comes to the end of the psalm, and he prays one of the great prayers of the Bible. Look at verses 23 and 24. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a short prayer, isn't it? But in this prayer are four powerful requests that live up to the idea of a dangerous prayer. A prayer that will take us from a place of comfort to discomfort. And challenge us to walk even more closely with Jesus Christ. Tonight I want to examine just the first request of that dangerous prayer found in the first half of verse number 23. David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. And what we find David doing in this request is giving God permission to search and know his heart. And if you and I will adopt a prayer like this, that's exactly what it means for us. 
It is to yield completely to God so that he can search and know our hearts. Not for the sake of his knowledge, but for the sake of revealing it to us so that we can make needed changes. One Bible teacher noted the nature of this dangerous prayer when he cautioned, I call upon you to be cautious in using this prayer. It is easy to mock God by asking him to search you whilst you have made but little effort to search yourselves. And perhaps still less to act upon the result of the scrutiny. In other words, don't mock God by asking God to search you when you're not willing to be searched or to search yourself. And when you are even less willing to make the changes that are needed as God reveals you to yourself. Remember, David, in saying this, is speaking to the God whom he recognized to be the omnipresent, omniscient God. The God who was everywhere present at all times. The God who knew everything. And David is calling upon him to search and know his heart. One Bible scholar called the God of Psalm 139, Yahweh, the already God. If you read through Psalm 139, David speaks about, Oh Lord, thou hast searched me and known me, and you can put in an already. You've already done it. You keep reading, Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising already. Thou understandest my thought afar off already, and you can understand the idea of the already God. He already knows. He's already present, yet David invited this everywhere present, all-knowing God to search him and know him. He was inviting God to examine him in a manner and method that is the prerogative of God. Only, only God can know someone this deeply, this intimately. But understand this tonight. God's searching is not legal, it's not adversarial. In other words, God's not searching so that he can pronounce and carry out judgment. This searching isn't so that God can know something about you that he can use to attack you. David understood that this searching that God would do, he trusted his God, that it would transform David and it would be done in love. That's what he knew about and believed about God. Even as David expressed his contempt for those who held God in attempt, David understood the biblical truth of the human heart. In other words, David could say, I can look out there and I can identify the wicked. And I hate their way. And I'm a man who has sought to be pure, who sought to live with integrity, to be righteous. But I know some truths about the human heart. One of those truths is what the prophet of God declared in his prophecy recorded in Jeremiah chapter 17. Remember Jeremiah 17 verse 9. The heart is what? Deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? This is God speaking. That all-knowing everywhere present at all times God. The heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. The request of David to search him was for the purpose of revealing what was in his heart. David wanted God to reveal 
his whole orientation of life, including his thoughts, his emotions, his motives. David thought he knew himself. I hate the way of the wicked. I hate the way they live. I, I am a man of integrity, of purity, of righteousness, and yet he recognized the corrupt nature of the human condition, which was his own condition, and he didn't trust it. David did not trust himself. He didn't trust his own ability to search and know his own heart. And so he cried out to God to reveal the true thoughts and intents of his heart. That's what God revealed as he did with the human heart as we continue reading in Jeremiah 17. In Jeremiah 17, 10, he goes on to say, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins. Even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Interestingly, these are Old Testament truths and principles, but Jesus almost repeats this thought verbatim when he addressed the church at Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2. Listen to Revelation 2.23. Jesus tells John to write a letter to seven churches. In the letter to the church at Thyatira, Jesus said these words, And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto who? Every one of you. Who was he writing to? A church. Those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Those who profess to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I search your hearts. And I will give to every one of you according to your works. David understood the corruption of the human condition and desired God to thoroughly examine him for the purpose of revealing what was in his heart. And that's what search means. If you go back to Psalm 139, verse 23, that word search is a Hebrew word found 27 times in the Old Testament, and it means to penetrate, to examine intimately. There's a use of it earlier in the psalm. Look at Psalm 40, 20 and 21. There the psalmist writes this, If we have forgotten the name of our God, or stretched out our hands to a strange God, shall not God search this out? For he knoweth what? The secrets of the heart. Think about that. The psalmist writing about the people of Israel, if we forget God or if we stretch out our hands to a strange God, God will search this out because he knows the secrets of the heart. Are you ever hesitant to reveal yourself to other people? And what I mean by that is often people you, me, people, can be very cautious and hesitant about revealing everything about themselves to others. Even the people we're closest to. 
there are thoughts and intents that we have from time to time that we will be very hesitant to share with anybody else. There are private places in your heart and mind that we even will attempt to conceal from others. But this dangerous prayer of David asks God to reveal those deepest, darkest parts of himself to himself. Again, this wasn't for God's benefit. David again said in verse 1 of Psalm 139, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me already. The already God. You've searched me. You've known me. God, you know my down-sitting, my uprising. You know my thought above, uh, afar off. There's not a word in my mouth, but Lord, you know it all together. If I go anywhere, you're already there. David understood this God was the God who knew all things about him, who knew everywhere that he went, who knew his thought even before he thought it, who knew his words even before they came out of his mouth. This wasn't about God getting some benefit. This was David asking God, God, search me so that you can show me myself. David wanted God to reveal to David what was in his own heart. This comes from a deep desire to be right with God. Even if it means allowing God to do a spiritual operation so as to reveal to David his misguided thoughts and motives, as well as his shortcomings and failures. Again, go back just a few verses, and David speaks about the wicked and his disdain for them and their activities. But David recognized the possibility of deception in himself. Maybe I've deceived myself about the wicked and and the way they live and my disdain for them. Maybe I've deceived myself about my own integrity and how pure and righteous I think I am and my thoughts are and my motives are. David realized there was that possibility of deception in himself. Do you realize that we're all liars? We all are. If, if we were transparent, if we had a moment of honesty, we'd all have to admit, yep, I, I lie. There are times that I lie. I exaggerate the truth. I tell a half-truth. I leave something out, not because I forgot, but for the sake of deception, because I don't want to tell that part. We all lie. But do you know the person that we lie to the most isn't our spouse? It's not our kids. It's not our parents. It's not the boss. It's not the co-workers. It's not the neighbors. Do you know who you lie to the most? Yourself. The most common lies that people tell are the lies that they tell themselves. When Stephanie and I traveled as leaders of one of the ministry teams from Pensacola Christian College, we had a student who I think, even though he talked a lot, 
one of the things that he said regularly as we would be out and about and see things and talking about things, he, he would often say something like this, well, he has a good heart. Well, she has a good heart. He would say that all the time about everybody. Well, she has a good heart. Well, she has a good heart. I think we often think that of ourselves. Well, I have a good heart. I know my thoughts. I know what's important. I know my motive in what I'm doing. And my motives are completely true, completely pure, completely honest. The reality of the human race, including us, is that we tend to see the best in and think the best of ourselves at times. We can often be our own worst critics, but we can also often be our own best cheerleaders. We have a way of, of thinking the best about ourselves, being masters of covering up, excusing, ignoring, or rationalizing our own shortcomings. It's often been referred to as spiritual blindness, and it's amazing how often our spiritual blindness is only directed at one person, us. Oh, we're great at picking out the excuses, the rationalizations, or the shortcomings in others, but have an awful hard time seeing it in ourselves. Maybe I can ask it of you this way. How do you approach God? Do you approach God the way that he desires? Authentically offering to him a dangerous prayer such as, Search me, O God, until he has revealed what is in your heart to you? Is that a, is that a request you're willing to make to God? Would he reveal that your care and concern is really nothing more than gossip? Would God reveal that you're rationalizing sinful anger, lust, or materialistic greed? Would God reveal that what you have rationalized or excused or ignored as not a big deal as being something that is actually a deep-rooted issue that is keeping you from drawing closer to him. I believe, search me, O God, and know me is a dangerous prayer, but the reality is that it is only a dangerous prayer that can be effective as far as we are willing to approach God rightly. In other words, don't mock God. Don't ask God to search you if you're not willing to stand up under the scrutiny. Don't ask God to search you if you're not willing to search out yourself. In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 40, I didn't put it up on the screen. But there, that's exactly what Jeremiah says about the people of Israel. Let me turn over there and read it for you. He uses the same word that David uses, search me, O God, when he writes this in Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 40. He says, let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. 
It's a dangerous prayer if we ask it authentically with a genuine desire to have God reveal what is in our hearts so that as God does, we can respond biblically. Give God permission to search and know your heart. Do it today. Put yourself in a place to receive what God will reveal and respond appropriately. In an episode of his podcast, pastor and author Paul David Tripp commented our, on our approach to Bible study. I believe it's applicable even to this idea of a dangerous prayer. He stated, there have been many times when I came to the word of God and stood above it when I should have stood underneath it. And went on to explain that often our approach to God's word and prayer determines what we'll get out of it. Think about what Jesus shared in Luke 18. Jesus shared about two men and their approach to God. Here's what Jesus said about the first who was a Pharisee in Luke 18, 11 and 12. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Here was a man of God who was crying out to God in prayer, but even by his prayer indicated he didn't really need God. God, I'm good. I'm right. Thank you for making me so holy and humble at the same time. He thought he was doing just fine on his own, so he didn't come to God with any recognition of or even desire for God to search him and know him, to reveal to him where he was lacking, where he fell short, where his motives were wrong. But then Jesus said this about the second man and the publican, that one that the Pharisee said, thank you that I'm not like him, standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you remember the result, right? Jesus said that one went down to his house justified while the other didn't. It was all in his approach to God. One thought he was good. He didn't need God. He was doing just fine on his own. He really wasn't interested in God searching him and revealing to him his own heart. The other recognized his desperate need for the Lord and placed himself under God's authority, which identifies your approach to God. I challenge you to approach God with an expectant heart, a humble heart, and an obedient heart rather than a closed heart, a proud heart, and a righteous heart. Come to God whether through Bible study or prayer, expecting that he will work his transformative power in your life. Come to God knowing that you are completely dependent on his grace and in desperate need of his strength and help. Come to God determined to yield to him and his work as he lovingly leads you. As you pray, search me, O oh God. 